Support for AHLA comes from Verilon Partners, Inc., a national leader in valuation, transaction advisory, compensation, and strategy exclusively in the healthcare industry. Verilon's Brain Trust approach pulls together focused teams of trusted advisors that work together to provide comprehensive solutions for an organization's complex and interrelated needs. For more information, visit Verilon.com. Hi, my name is Jessica Stack, and I'm here with Kristen Woodrum and Tara Ravi. Um, we're speaking with Tara and Kristen in follow-up to the Transactions Conference, where they presented on the topic, Higher Stakes, Upping the Ante on Physician Transactions. We're going to use that conversation to kind of take it a little further and follow up on some of the themes there. Um and get into the weeds maybe in some of the topics that I heard during that presentation, Tara and Kristen get excited about or kind of start sharing more stories on. Um, but before we do that, I'm gonna let Kristen and Tara introduce themselves. Um, Kristen, you wanna introduce yourself? Thanks, Jessica. Um, Kristen McDermott Woodrum, I'm a partner in the Atlanta office of McGuire Woods. And I've been on all sides of these physician hospital PE transactions over the years. And there, Tara and I are not big gamblers. We had a loose theme for our presentation, just talking about the trends and regulatory challenges that we were seeing impacting the different players and their strategies for winning this high stakes game of physician transactions. Uh, I'm Tara Ravi. I'm of counsel at Parker Hudson based out of Atlanta. Um, my practice area is physician transactions, um, hospital transactions, PE transactions, re regulatory and reimbursement and some compliance work as well. Great. And I'll just start. I mean, I, I think the genesis of Kristen and I brainstorming on this topic was, you know, obviously there's been like the boom in physician hospital PE transactions, but also then there was COVID and, and this idea of if I'm a very profitable physician practice and I'm still autonomous and, and not affiliated particularly with any hospital or for private equity, you know, how, what does that look like five years from now? Does that remain the same or kind of applying the recent factors? Yeah, you'd shared, uh, I think in the presentation, just the upswing in transaction activity and physician and physician groups continuing to leave their independent status and join partnership. Um, did you observe sort of two questions? Were there any themes in the types of groups that were joining or was it still just across the board? And do you see that trend continuing? Or do you think it was a pandemic focused trend? Well, I'll let Kristen start with all the stats. She's like the numbers, the numbers expert here. Um, <laughs> then we can kind of speak to specialties after that. Yeah, so I think Tara and I were both handling a lot of transactions um, involving physician practices and um, kind of anecdotally seeing shifts in the types of specialties that were being targeted both by health systems and PE and some increased competition there. Um, but we, in our presentation, cited a study that Avalar Health released last month, and they had looked at physician employment over a three-year period, it was January 1st of 2019 through January 1st of this year, and they found that as of the start of 2022, almost three in four doctors, 73.9% were employed by hospitals or other corporate entities. So that's PE and um, non-physician entities like Optum and, and Walmart even. 
And so then they also looked at the focus of COVID on the transaction activity. So over the three-year period, the total percentage of employed physicians grew by 19%, but 76% of this shift occurred after the onset of COVID. And for PE, it was a steady growth rate, um, a big growth rate, 43%. Um, for hospitals, they now employ just over half of all, of all physicians, 52.1%. But there was a really steep uptick that began in July of 2020 at the peak of the pandemic. So I think that for hospital transactions, COVID probably accelerated that trend. And th those were study reports were consistent with other, other stats that we've seen. And you said there was a shift in type of specialties. Was there anything in particular you saw that stood out to you? You know, what I think is interesting is it, when we started seeing PE investment, what, 20, 30 years ago, it was what I would call in like exclusive um, arrangement practices, anesthesia, ER, radiology, and, and those original PE roll-ups tend to be some of the biggest right now and, and frankly, most powerful when it comes to some of the lobbying. And then, of course, we transitioned into what would be what I'd call kind of middle um, surgical practices. So nothing is maybe as big as ortho, but gastro, dermatology, ophthalmology, where you were doing services as ASCs became more popular and there were practices that were more ASCs dependent. And now, I mean, it's almost a free-for-all, right? Like there, there's practices that are specialties that are being invested in that nobody even thought you could make money off of from a PE aspect, like OBGYN, primary care, pain management. I mean, if you want to get into some of the wacky stuff you see down in Florida, it's investment in like ketamine treatment centers, investment in, I mean, it's almost anything and everywhere. It's, it, it's almost like everybody wants to have a stake in anything healthcare related. So, um, you know, everybody's always kind of waiting for the bottom to fall out, but until it does, it's going to get more saturated, even in these non-traditional areas is what it looks like. Yeah. You talked in your presentation yeah, about say PE being at the table as well as hospitals is sort of two of the major historical players. I want to, I want to ask, but you know, Chris, I heard you kind of jumping in there. So go ahead. Um, if, if my question is taking us a different direction, go ahead and finish your thought there. <laughs> but it, cause I wanted to ask about those that have remained independent and if there are characteristics about them that are helping them do so. Um, but Kristen, were you going to add to what Tara had said? Yeah. Um, and, and that's a great question, Jessica, but we are definitely seeing an uptick in all, across all specialties, urology, cardiology, orthopedics, women's health, GI, it's everything. And I think that's really getting the attention of hospitals um, who didn't maybe weren't as concerned when it was just the radiologist or the anesthesiologist, hospitalist, ERs. Um, and then it's also the primary care. And I think there we're also seeing this huge push of the disruptors, those non-traditional corporate healthcare players who are investing in primary care. So I mentioned Walmart and Optum, but you also have um, a lot of the primary care investment platforms that are making a kind of risk-based play for Medicare Advantage patients. Um, so you know, primary care is central to population health and to referrals and hospital networks. So that's a big change with a lot of crowded space. Yeah, to your question, some of the specialties that, that remain independent, frankly, it's the ones that are so profitable that hospitals get into deep water trying to employ them or private equity, given the multiples out there, still can't, can't get to the right number. Outside of the money itself, 
I mean, I like to focus kind of on ortho because we've seen, okay, ortho, we're going to have all these roll-ups and I, and I don't, you know, it, it is happening slowly, but surely, but ortho is a good, if you've got a successful independent ortho practice, you've got a lot of ancillaries involved. You've got various type of practitioners. It's not just mid-levels or um, physicians, but you have like physiatrists or sports medicine doctors, and, you know, you've almost got what I'd call different sublines of business and you've got the successful ones will have practice, not just ortho, but large number of physicians across practice area, internal kind of sub-practice areas and age groups. So, you know, diversity among practices, sub-practices of age, of motivations, and being able to, frankly, self-manage appropriately without the need of a hospital or, or, um, or private equity puts private equity or hospitals on the defense particularly hospitals, because you notice if you look at all the fraud cases, it's almost going to be nine out of 10, some employment arrangements. Now we're starting to see some new PSA arrangements, but trying to employ a very profitable surgical practice that has a lot of inpatient surgeries and outpatient surgeries, it's going to be difficult to come up with the numbers. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you talk about ortho and um, something we've been thinking about on a different topic where if you're just a clinical practice with professional services, it's going to be a lot harder to stay independent. And then also whether, um, I think you talked about in the presentation, the financial stress, the administrative burden, all the, the difficulty of managing a practice as a physician. So if you're just doing that with your clinical services and your direct patient um, visits, it's going to be a lot harder, but if you can build out all of those, um, extensions, the imaging, the ancillaries, the, and then yeah. build the platform and then have that breadth internally to be in and of yourself, a group that has that diversity. Um, yeah, it's positions much pra- better. Yeah. And you know, what I've found is interesting. I think practices that took advantage of investing or building out ASCs back when they weren't so trendy when the concept of outpatient surgeries, they tend to do well because they they were managed well enough to come up with that idea. And then to, if they were able to manage that concept through, these are very now profitable ASCs versus let's say your gastro or your kind of derm or ophthalmology where you've got an ASC, maybe two or three in a particular region, but you're just not managed that well because you've kind of added this onto your practice to increase revenues. And it wasn't a long-term business plan perhaps. So in terms of, your two major players, and then we'll, we can get to the disruptors in two, um, your PE and your hospitals. What have you seen change or has anything changed? You can talk, I think you talked about different deal structures um, that you've been seeing, like the PSAs versus employment, um, and then other attempts to sort of develop joint ventures. Did that change at all during the pandemic, or is it just sort of a continuation with the increase in transaction volume? That's a good question too, Jessica. I think a lot of this is just a continuation of what was happening pre-COVID. I think during COVID, perhaps some hospitals had to take a pause and focus on patient care um, while PE continued to accelerate their pace of acquisitions. Um, and others you know, did a good job of picking up those, those groups that were looking for financial security. But I think increasingly we're seeing situations where groups are sort of looking at different suitors and considering what a relationship with a hospital might look like. There's traditional employment, which involves giving up a lot of autonomy. Um, And then there are PSA models where they're 
you know, a little bit more engaged um, and are billing under the same managed care contracts and have, you know, some financial alignment, but isn't true integration. Um, and then there's the promise of PE, which a lot of times will involve um, remaining a little bit more autonomous and independent. There's this entrepreneurial drive and development and growth, which appeals to many doctors. Um, and then there's this second bite at the apple where, you know, there's hopefully going to be an exit transaction to an acquirer um, or an IPO at some point where the physicians get, get cash um, and, and that's appealing to many of them. And so I think another genesis for this presentation, Tara and I have seen hospitals struggling to kind of counter that, that offer that PE has, and they can't do it exactly the same way um, because of just their business operations are different and there are very stringent regulatory constraints on what they can do and offer. Um, you know, one example that sort of is more aligned with what hospitals do is the co-management arrangements and the joint venture surgery centers. Um, there's definitely risk there. <laughs> and then we're even seeing all three of these groups get together and do joint ventures. So a PE-backed practice is involved with a clinically integrated network of a health system or providing services through a service line or co-management agreement um, and developing JVASCs. It's kind of, if you can't beat them, join them. Yeah, I think I wouldn't say there's so much change from last year or the, this year or the last year or the year before. But if you look back maybe five or 10 years, what's interesting is, you know, PE's got, like Kristen said, the great advantage of upfront cash and rollover equity. I, I think to some extent, nobody, that it is a disadvantage in some instances when you're courting these like independent great practices, the PE's kind of limited to one structure. It's going to be your captive model and Maybe you'll have various subcategories or MSOs or subpods, but but it is a basic structure. For hospitals, hospitals kind of have the opportunity now to play the long game, have maybe a five-year engagement before, you know, sometimes it comes as a shock to physicians when you're courting them, especially if you've got a range of ages that this is what it's going to be. This is your upfront cash. This is what your partnership may look like. But for hospitals, they can take advantage of strategic affiliations and it can be the hospitals have a lot of leeway as far as what those quote, strategic affiliations will be, especially as we move more towards coordinated care and value based. And, um, and they can use that. I think I've seen it used as both a, a tool to attract a good practice or a weapon to force maybe a, a smaller practice to affiliate with them in a much move them towards an employment agreement or an acquisition. Um, so as hospitals really get a grip on value-based care, clinical, clinically integrated networks, and they expand those, they've got more options, may not be a bigger upfront cash option, but they have more options in their tool bag to try and attract a practice than perhaps private equity does. I work with a lot of hospitals and that's the question they're always asking is how do we compete? How do we stay able? You know, what is our... Uh, you know, we, we don't, we're not playing with the same deck of cards that the private equity <laughs> has. <laughs> and so yeah, I think to hear yeah. some, some hope there are some different strategies that they can. Yeah. I, I think you have to think about it like a, like a long-term engagement, trying to court somebody. It's not going to be a quick, like, you know, swipe left, swipe, swipe right. <laughs> maybe as it may be with private equity comes along, comes up with an offer, here are your terms. Okay. Does it work for everyone? 
that might be like a six to nine month process. It might be like a three to five year process for a hospital. Yeah. And I think ultimately the, everybody has the payers to contend with. So hospitals are big and they have problem with payers. The physician groups are smaller, even the PE backed ones. And you know, they, they struggle to, to secure favorable payer contracts, just given the size of payers nowadays. Um, so I think those CINs and value-based, um, you know, the promise of value-based enterprises are, are interesting and appealing. Something you had mentioned during the presentation that piqued my curiosity, and maybe it was just sort of a one-off situation. So you can tell me if I'm taking this on a tangent, um, but you talked about not just PE kind of getting immediate, more media attention, but um, some situations where maybe this is like I said, if I'm going on a tangent, just ring me in, um, where maybe they will have more attention and future limitations, given the idea that if they're bringing all these together and negotiating and raising, um, increasing pricing, uh, that was one sort of topic. And like I said, if I heard it wrong in the presentation, correct me. And then the other one was just, I think there was a case you'd raised um, where the PCMSO joint venture structure got scrutiny. Um, and they'd raise this question of group practice definition. So the theme of, I guess, the question I'm trying to ask is, are you, what are you seeing in terms of maybe not just media attention, but any risks that the PEs have of future limitations that they don't currently have today? Uh, you know, I, I thought just kind of on a most, more basic level, that PEs somewhat seemed not so much unregulated, but there are all these like regulatory questions that never got answered outright by government agencies. We've got like earn out questions and kickback apply in some of these areas and fee splitting and corporate practice of medicine. And it seemed like for the most part, the government was staying quiet or, or in some cases taking favorable positions. And I, I kind of thought maybe that was because it was, they wanted to see what was this competition now between hospitals and PE and would it bring something better and would it bring more competition, which, which makes sense. But now it seems like you know, that silence is gone and people are ready to put the sweat people. The government is ready to put a spotlight on PE as well because they're also getting big. So it's it's not so much, okay, let's see how hospitals respond to having a competitor out there. It's okay, well, maybe we've got two monopolies going on and, and they're and finally you're starting, not finally, but you know, you are starting to see some oversight via surprise billing and um FTC is starting to think about it and start shining a spotlight there and you know, I wonder if we're going to start seeing more advisory opinions or maybe CMS opinions on these earnouts, how they're getting paid, um, investments. It, it, there's been there's a dearth of regulatory opinions in this area. So, um, I guess as far as I don't even know if I've answered your question, but you know, I, I do think that obviously yeah. the government wants more competition in healthcare. Um, so the question is, is PE under the spotlight and maybe these general disruptors now will, will be able to run under the radar for a little bit and, and we're going to hope a third person comes in. There's been a lot of focus on PE. Um, there was a study that looked at the results of Envision and Team Health acquisition of a lot of these hospital-based practices and the use of maybe surprise bills out of network billing as a strategy to negotiate with payers or just the higher rates that they're able to get, but makes sense because they're negotiating against big payers. Um, so that that's gotten a lot of scrutiny. The antitrust enforcement is, you know, definitely I think something states and the federal government are looking at in terms of these acquisitions. 
fraud and abuse has picked up. Um, the government has made it very clear that they're going to hold all responsible parties um, accountable for fraud and abuse. So in some cases, that's even the private equity um, funds that are sponsoring the, the platform companies if they're not passive investors. So, um, you know, that's, that's definitely a risk. And, you know, you mentioned the CON type laws, which are a limitation for hospitals and for physicians. Um, and I think the case you mentioned is, is just a position that's being taken here in Georgia that physician practices that have MSOPC relationships with management companies don't really qualify as physician practices that should be able to um, enjoy an exemption from the CON rules for office-based surgery centers. So it's just sort of that, that market play of hospitals versus physicians and, and PE. And then what are you seeing that's different about the disruptors? You kind of, we kind of mentioned them here and there, but we really haven't talked about what, what they're doing and how they're inter- interrupting the game as usual. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a great point. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see what healthcare looks like in five years, just given the entrance of these new players. Um, you know, for example, Walmart is investing really big in primary care and retail health, especially in rural areas. And um, they've invested in Epic, which would be, you know, communicate with hospitals, EHR systems. So I think they could be a very big part of, you know, healthcare delivery in the future. Um, Optum is gobbling up physician practices right and left. They're even going after practices that are currently aligned or employed by hospitals. Um, and so that changes things increasingly. And I think some of the focus of our transactions program in Nashville is just on the consumerization of healthcare and you know telehealth and going to a retail clinic and not waiting and traveling to a inconvenient medical complex to get care, but getting it quickly and um, more economically. Uh, and that's what, a lot of what the disruptors are promising. This might be a little bit of a tangent, but you know, I find it, it's not that I'm just skeptical of the disruptors, but in the beginning we had like the big Amazon investment where, oh, Amazon was going to do healthcare. And then that like quietly disbanded. And then it was, you know, CVS is going to have all of these up the street, local physical retail health clinics, and that's going to be great. And, and, you know, to Kristen said, Walmart, we're going to have all these local health clinics. And the reality is now we're we've switched from, is it telehealth or is it having a health clinic down the street or is it both or how's that going to work? And, you know, Walmart seems to be in a very good position to, because they control a large patient base. So it might be so much more so that, you know, are you a company that has a large number of patients to offer and can you then control the quality of care that those patients get, meaning wanting better care? I know Walmart has programs where they've, apparently they've got a lot of expense in orthopedic surgeries for their for their employees. So they're, they would rather ship the employee out somewhere to where they know the provider is going to provide like great value care for the right price and have the patient get their like, hip replacement and then have them come back. So those kind of concepts of directing providers on, oh, and ensuring that you're getting the best dollar for, for the service um, might be a better strategy than some of the other ones we've seen in the past where there hasn't been a dedicated understanding perhaps of healthcare, just wanting to get into the business. Yeah. 
how ready are you to face the regulatory environment that you're entering? Um, right. Some right. of those that we're mentioning are big enough that they've crossed many different regulatory challenges in their mm-hmm. operating history. But I think a lot of what we see from smaller disruption are attempts to enter um, where there's, I think I've talked to Chris and you about some of what you've seen or people will call you or Tara because they've tried to enter healthcare as a disruptor and then surprise, there's all these regulations that they have to deal with and, and navigate and learn on the fly, um, especially like with the yeah. technology interruptions. Yeah, I always love being the bearer of that wonderful news. Um, <laughs> but there's a way around it. It's just not as straightforward in healthcare. Do you see any of these um, sort of at-home health or telehealth, um, those types of opportunities where the physician groups are seizing them directly or even um, the hospitals, you know, the, the traditional providers of care that are staying in the mix with some of the, um, services provided that are part of the disruption model. I think Terry, you had talked about telehealth as an opportunity. Yeah. You, you know, I definitely think that physician, what's interesting right now is there was such a push during COVID telehealth, 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 and now it's like, frozen still, and we don't know what the government's going to rein back in. We don't know what the government's going to move forwards. I think physicians could and should be incentivized to use telehealth to expand the services they can provide. What I think is interesting from like a patient perspective is that even though like we had an in-person conference for actually transactions, but I went to see a new, new physician and it was, the consultation was, here's your tele, here's your options for the telehealth appointment. Like it wasn't even an option to see the physician in person for the first initial consultation. So, you know, some, obviously that means some physicians really enjoy doing telehealth and maybe will add telehealth as much as possible. And, and some are, this is the same as going back to work, right? Some people love being in back to work in person and some people want to do it two or three days a week. So um, I think from a personal perspective, it's interesting how telehealth is being used, but um, as far as using telehealth to try and expand the scope of, of revenue for a physician practice, there's so many opportunities out there. And then I think when I presented, when I prepared this presentation, I thought, you know, so many opportunities and it's like dead silence and everybody's in a holding pattern over the course of the last three, four months as COVID is, you know, and I don't even want to make a commentary on COVID because there's all these cases now, but, you know, we're, we're like in a holding pattern. So personally, I think we need to just move forwards with telehealth because it can't just be, okay, do we have COVID? Do we not have COVID? Is this or that? Because there's no controlling that. It's just a question that the government needs to say is, yes, this is how we're moving forwards. And they don't seem to be incentivized right now, or at least are holding strong and in a pattern of nowhere. Yeah, but I, I don't know that the commercial um, is necessarily going to stay in that holding pa- pattern and some of the, the payers and you mentioned Walmart, the self-insured plans are forming coalitions that really want to drive people to what they consider the right care, the right price at the right place. Um, mm-hmm. Another thing that was interesting is the transactions conference, the keynote. Um, speaker from Bain indicated the average wait time to get into primary care was, I can't remember, several months. Um, and so, you know, if we can ease up on that pressure by shifting some of the younger patients to telehealth who would prefer that, you know, giving the physicians more time with the boomers and the people who love to go to the doctor, um, maybe, maybe that's an opportunity. 
And then just back to your original question, Jessica, um, and shifting care, I think that's going to be a huge trend. And without COVID and the regulatory flexibilities that were enjoyed and not really abused, um, you know, it's going to be hard to, to go back, but it's not going to be an immediate, just the door is wide open. So we'll be working through that for a few years. But just from a a fraud and abuse perspective, you know, we've talked a lot in our presentation about group practices and ancillary revenues. And, you know, there are some very stringent requirements for group practices to make inter-practice referrals and to share in overall profits of the practice and give out productivity bonuses that include those designated health service revenues. And, um, you know, one of the developments we flagged was a CMS advisory, you know, it was a frequently asked question just about the um, in-office ancillary services exception and where items have to be furnished to qualify. Um, and they were talking about mailing um, certain items and services to the patient. And, and CMS said, nope, <laughs> you can't do that. You're not dispensing it to the patient in the office. You're dispensing it in the office, but you're not dispensing it to the patient in the office. So Again, just looking at the traditional regulatory framework, kind of limiting this sort of transformation of healthcare or ability to to provide care in a more patient-friendly way. You also talked about just, I think, some of the challenges, uh, not just the pandemic itself, but uh, happened to be in the past couple of years, um, the Medicare fee schedule and how that interrupted potentially PSAs and just employment arrangements, um, but just the challenge of trying to navigate those changes at the same time. Um, and then currently the staffing challenges that are being faced as well. I don't know if there's anything you wanna talk about on either of those and if not, that's fine too, but I, those were, there were some other, I think, um, challenges that you covered given changes in some of the updates and regulations too. Yeah, I think those came up in the concept of hospitals getting the one-two punch during um, COVID. <clears throat> we have the staffing issues and position burnout, et cetera. And, you know, some, you know, in my experience, there were some, I wouldn't say litigious, but there were, there was some conflict between physicians and, and hospitals during COVID, particularly, I think, for profitable practices that got sidelined um, when it came to what was there, like work RVU comp going to be for some years, um, for some periods. And then with regard to the fee schedule changes and, and mixed with all of this was fee schedule changes to work our view, right? I mean, I'm grossly simplifying what happened, but um, fee schedule changes to work RVU values for 2021, which kind of gave physicians who, who did get sidelined some positioning, some leverage to maybe renegotiate their PSAs or um, specifically PSAs. And, and that just created some conflict between those relationships, physicians and, and hospitals in a time when hospitals were just bleeding money and were unable to staff and getting hammered. And like Kristen said, PE was kind of, as soon as those PPE P loans came through, PE was like moving swimmingly, like nothing even happened and hospitals are still recovering. So, you know, it doesn't, at some point, it just seems like, is it even a fair fight, right? But, so that we were just highlighting the, the many ways hospitals were having to like juke and pivot <laughs> and, and deal with both regulatory and pricing and just kind of staying, keeping your head above water during this period of time. 
And we're sure, Jessica, you dealt with all of the the challenges of the E&M and the, <clears throat> the um, survey data and just how to, how to deal with it and when to deal with it. Yeah, I mean, I think it was wild how that coincided with the pandemic um, because you know, we, we do advisory with hospitals that want to transition physician compensation um, you know, pre-pandemic where if you've got a bunch of different physicians and different models and you want to put them on one um, consistent model and you got to figure out what that's going to be or you're transitioning it. Uh, and the work is uh, one of the examples we give is start early and try to give them um, inf enough information about what the comp would look like <laughs> under the new model versus what they're making now. And so I kind of think about that in this perfect storm of, oh, well, the worker reviews are calculated differently. So we could try to show you that, but your volume's also yeah. all out of whack. And it's not even just lower or higher, the kinds of visits you may still be doing is one type of visit, but others are yeah. gone. So it's just like such a mess that it was, yeah, like you said, the one, two punch, like all of it coming at once, it was kind of wild. Um, a lot, I think there was just like in the deals, a lot of band-aids placed and just sort of holding yeah. through with the exceptions. Um, and now we see really, some jumped on it sooner, but the rollout of, okay, here is the math that shows you that while the per unit rate might change, you shouldn't actually change your total comp. And those conversations um, are now the, now the theme that are, some of them have already ha happened, like I said, but that's definitely coming, coming due. If it hasn't been done, it needs to be done. Yeah. Now you know what? That's right. It's the coming due part, which is kind of interesting. Um, There's always more to do. Of course. <laughs> and now everyone's really definitely focused on just 2022 with its own struggles with first quarter and then the staffing challenges with nurses and everything is just a whole nother tangent because that yeah. it's not just the hospitals that are experiencing those. Some of you, know, we talked about the ancillaries for the physician groups that remain independent um, but they're going to have some of the same challenges with their, their staff needs. Yeah. I mean, and, and we did highlight in our presentation, there seems to be an addition, there seems to be more of a push for expanding the scope of practice or utilization for mid-levels and, um, basically mid-level professionals because we've got such a staffing problem and, to some extent, physicians were like a little obstinate, not obstinate, but hesitant to outsource <laughs> everything to mid-levels. But I think that's kind of dialing back just out of necessity, um, needing some help. And, and mid-levels, I think, were very profitable during the last couple of years, more so than usual. So we were seeing some, yeah, I mean, at least we've seen instances where hospitals were initially hesitant to bring in mid-levels. Now, obviously, definitely want to bring in some mid-levels. And, and those mid-levels are just the profitability is almost like two X what they thought they were going to get out of those mid-levels when initially they thought they were going to take a loss in some places. So, um, and CMS seems to be kind of opening out kind of payment structures for that, who can do what. And mm -hmm. on the state level is where you've seen more action just during COVID. You've had a lot of uh, mid-levels being able to, as far as ancillaries, supervise some radiology services, um, be able to provide supervision where otherwise they weren't able to. Physicians now, CMS is opening up the idea of 
or propose the idea of physicians being able to do their supervision elements via telemedicine for radiology, which I think is interesting for ancillaries. It's interesting for ancillaries under a PSA where normally some of those radiology services are carved out because it's just technically very complicated under Stark Law. Um, so that's a trend I don't think will be dialed back. I do think we're gonna see a lot more mid-levels and, and profitability from them. But you know, with that also comes the age-old question of how much do you pay a physician from when your mid-level is like very, very mm -hmm. profitable, I think, then you've got if you're a group practice, you get to split that profitability, right? If you're an, a physician employee, then you start to wonder, you know, how am I gonna make money off of my super profitable mid-level that I'm supervising? And I don't think you guys run the numbers, Jessica. <laughs> I don't think on from a regulatory <laughs> perspective, we've got a lot of wiggle room as to um how to compensate physicians for highly profitable mid-levels. No, I mean, then you're back in that profitable group model or full circle to employment isn't going to close the gap. And mm -hmm. so is the physician group going to stay independent, go with PE if there's an option yeah. or you know, we're right back to that. How does a hospital yeah. play or is the group just, you know, on its own? And that, that is what it is. Yep. Uh, I mean, any recommendations or thoughts is, is, um, I mean, you, you work with all these different client types. Is there a challenge that they're facing specifically that, um, or a question that comes up frequently in, in this theme of doing these challenging deals, um, that you've heard or that you've experienced sort of a success story with or anything? Well, you know, it's the question of, I have seen some deals, I would say very recently, that seemed like they were going to very easily move forward with PE or some physician practices that fell apart at the last hour. And, and maybe that's not any different than other deals that fall apart at the last hour. But I think what you have are physicians who are increasingly more knowledgeable about PE type deals and hospital deals than they were years ago, because we've got so much past history. They've got so many other peers who have gone through that experience themselves. And now that you see so much saturation by PE, they're asking some very difficult questions. They're, you've got some very business savvy physicians who are negotiating hard on their behalf um, and, and you know, forcing these PE firms to go back and reevaluate and reevaluate and reevaluate. And that keeps you, know, you all very busy. Um, so I, I do think that's interesting. I, I have seen from my physician practices much more business savvy asking the right questions. And that seems to be dragging these deals out a little bit more than usual. But that makes sense. You know, I, I a lot large profitable practice, you're going to have some business savvy people if they've stayed independent and profitable throughout all of this mess. Sorry, Kristen, you didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, no, no, I agree with what you're saying. And I mean, I think for both the hospitals and the PE, they want to be an attractive partner. And so the question is how to do that and then meet the objectives of what this transaction would look like. And so, you know, for PE, you've got the constraints across the country with the CPOM laws of the MSOPC structure and, mm -hmm. you know, putting together the group and the comp plans and figuring out the management fee and the expenses, um, you know, getting the ancillaries in the right place. Um, I do see a lot of continued interest in expanding ASCs, you know, even though CMS kind of reversed on phasing out the inpatient only list. I think a lot of us are still bullish on ASCs, um, doing JV still with hospitals and physicians, including, you know, PE physicians. Um, and then also 
kind of looking into the future, you know, we were all really excited when the regulatory sprint rules came out, in particular the, the Stark and the kickback rules, um, you know, perhaps for hospitals more than anyone, some of those technical rules kind of eased some of the burden of enforcement over practice losses and what's commercially reasonable. Um, and then for, you know, PE, it's the continued challenge of navigating the group practice. We had an advisory opinion come out to give us some guidance that a lot of what uh, people have been doing with keeping subsidiaries in place is permissible under this, you know, one of the elements of the group practice um, requirement. Um, but just continuing down the path of, you know, bringing in the right revenues, getting it to the physicians um, and keeping an eye on what the other players are doing. Yeah, so I think we're coming up at the end of our time. So I just wanted to, it's been a pleasure talking to you guys both today. I'm glad we had this opportunity. Um, any last closing thoughts before we wrap up today? No, back to our gambling theme. <laughs> it, it's hard. It's hard to make a bet on who's going to be the winning horse, right? So I do, I, if I had to bet, I don't, I just don't see 10 years from now, how you're going to have even still imagine the most profitable ortho practice. Just don't see how, how that would continue just given the many larger just payment structures and managed care and government regulation. Um, we're down to, like Kristen said in, in the beginning with the statistics, we've like whittled it down to a select few. Um, and it may be that these younger doctors just see the world in two ways. It's either hospitals or it's private equity, right? The concept of maybe being independent is, is, a, is a, might be like an older concept. So I'm going to put my money on either hospitals or PE, but, but probably not on independent <laughs> practices, to be honest. Make two bets. Yeah. And I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, we talked about like, are the cards stacked against one player or another um, with a lot of, you know, economic and regulatory variables. And I'll just get back to this quote we used in our, our PowerPoint deck. It was from the author, Jack London, and kind of applies to both poker and these physician transactions. Life is not always a matter of holding good cards, but sometimes playing a poor hand well. So I think that's what we'll be trying to help our, our clients do. And it was great seeing you, Jessica and Tara in Nashville and participating today. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure. Thank you both. Thanks, Jessica. Thanks, Kristen. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.